All right, everyone, welcome to The Calling Vision. This is where we explore and honor the idea that your vision has selected you and is inviting you to bring it into form. And when you choose to align and partner with that vision, you can change the world. This is B.B. Harding, your host, and today I have as my guest, Gayla Baker. Hi, Gayla. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So um, one of the things that we're going to do today is we're going to be talking with a breast cancer veteran. And this can be a really difficult topic and a tough conversation, as it's likely that you know somebody or have known somebody who has lost their lives to cancer. For most of us, it's a dreaded word. As one of my friends has said, it's the C word. So how do we engage with a person who is going through the experience? How can we be truly supportive for them? How do we engage with the emotional upheaval that emerges? My guest, Gaylit, is a breast cancer veteran and is coming out with a new book, If Cancer is a Gift, Can I Return It? From Grief to Healing. It is a memoir where she pulls together what it's like to be on both sides of the fence. She's a 40-year retired nurse practitioner and the patient. She has interfaced her sense of irreverence and humor into her narrative. We'll be talking with Gayla about the call of her book and what the why behind it. We're also going to be talking with her about some of the questions that people might typically have about what's going on with the person who is experiencing cancer. So Gayla, are you up for the challenge here? I'll do my best. Okay. All right. So one of the things that I know you've talked about that, you know, from grief to healing, is that, you know, we're familiar, well, I'm, I'm sure that most people are familiar with the five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did. And I know that you and I have, over the years, have had conversations about, you know, the stages of grief. And so you know, one of the things that I did is I just looked up, you know, what does grief mean? And it says, you know, it's the experience around any change that alters your life as you know it. And... <laughs> Would you would you change that definition, or would you say that yep, that pretty much covers it? I think that's um, elegant in its simplicity, right there. Okay. So um, one of the things that I wanted to do is in working with the energy of the podcast, I asked what it would like to do today, and it said that it wanted to be able to empower people with the knowledge and the information about what it's like to be both the cancer patient as well as the caregiver or friend or relative or, you know, somebody who knows the cancer patient and what it would like to do. And so I have a list of questions that we might go over. And one of the first ones is like, you got diagnosed. I don't know what year that was. I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. 2011. 2011. So when you were diagnosed, what happened for you? You're sitting in the doctor's office. I don't know. Are you by yourself? Do you have your this Terry with you, or no? I had a um, series of issues with my breast, um, some fluid-filled cysts over the years, and and they would always come back suspicious. So I'd have a mammogram; it would come back suspicious. I'd have to go down and have a uh, an ultrasound, and it would always come back fluid-filled, which is not a precursor to cancer. So I. I got used to it. I got, you know, it was like no big deal. Um, I expected the call after a mammogram. 
And I, of course I got it. And they asked me to come back for the ultrasound. And um, so I, you know, I just took it as a day that I was going to have a day off from work and I could go and visit a few shops afterward and, and have a good time. And then my first clue that something wasn't right was the look on the radiologist's face and um, as he was doing the ultrasound. And he said it, it, it did not appear to be fluid filled. So um, being a nurse, I've always, and I developed a skill that you do not react right there in the moment. You always wait to see how things play out. So I said, okay, we'll just go to the next step and see what's coming. And I did, had a biopsy and um, went home, had an uncomfortable feeling in my gut that I just, I wouldn't think about it. I was just going to put that off, kind of like the Scarlet O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. I'll think about that tomorrow. And then got the call and I heard the words, I'm sorry, it's cancer. And, uh, you know, my brain shut down. I totally couldn't get my two brain cells to speak to each other. So I couldn't say anything. I just, just went dead airspace on my side of the phone. And um, the, my breast surgeon uh, finally had to fill the, the gap and said, we'll come in tomorrow and we'll talk about the next steps. And that was the start. So, and then at that time, did you go in by yourself or did you have Terry come with you? I went by myself. I, I wasn't smart enough at the time, which I, you know, I wouldn't recommend. I would, uh, people need other people. What I did not know at the time, and it took quite a bit of time and, and error and doing everything the wrong way before I figured out I was in a state of shock. Um, and when you're in a state of shock, you're, um, primal brain, which I call the lizard brain in my book, that is the instinctive reactive uh, part of your brain that is self-protective. It shuts down a lot of your rational thinking. You, you can't think straight. You can't hear uh, as well. You can't see as well. You're just primarily focused on survival. So when I showed up for the, for the exam, I was terrified. And I didn't even realize it. And I, I struggled. So that's in the book too. Don't go alone. You, you, you need some help at this stage. Okay. So, so that was a big learning experience right there was, you know, like, okay, you're not alone, but then how do you engage people to participate with you? Well, at first you go through this chaotic, horrific onslaught of emotions and people react in different ways. Uh, I reacted in a way that I, I was embarrassed to have gotten breast cancer. I had been a food snob all my life, a health nut. I had done all the healthy things. And here I get, I'm the nurse. I'm supposed to schedule mammograms. I do breast exams. I teach breast cancer prevention. I wasn't supposed to get it. And it was almost like failure to actually get it. So I was embarrassed. I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't mm. want to talk about it. My first thing is, it was when I found out the news, I called my best friend and um, she picked up the phone and I said, it's cancer and I don't want to talk about it. 
And if I'd had the old receiver that we used to have, I would have slammed it down. And then I called my uh, nursing supervisor because I was going to have to tell her I needed off again for the next day to, to go in for um, my plan of attack. And um, I just, I started out all calm and normal and, you know, factual this, you know, I'm going to have to go in. And then I just melted down and ended up in a screaming match that I can't do this. So that was how I initially reacted. And then it evolved. The more people find out that you have breast cancer, they, they, they react differently. Also, it, it depends on their scars and their trauma around the word uh, cancer, the, the big C. Um, if they've had a lot of trauma in the past, they avoid you. Uh, if they um, think that they're supposed to be empathetic and they don't have the energy to do it, they, they give these platitudes and then back off really fast. And some just really jump in there and are with you for the ride. You, you don't know what you're going to find. You don't know how people are going to react. Yeah. So you just take it as it comes. How, I know like, um, I just recently lost a good friend of mine to cancer. And I know that for her, she wanted to maintain a very positive attitude. She was doing alternative therapies. She didn't want to talk about death and what have you. So, you know, talking around cancer and my experience and the emotionality of it, can be very difficult, right. um, you know, for both sides of the fence. The, the patient doesn't want to talk about it. And as a caregiver, it's like, what do you say? You know, <laughs> what kind of advice might you give to, you know, people about how do you deal with the emotional impact, you know, on both sides of the fence? Are you, and you're talking from the caregiver side? Well, for both, you know, so like, so here I am, I'm having a conversation with you and you get all emotional as the patient. How do I deal with that? Or I get emotional because it's like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. You know, what kind of advice would you give for how do people navigate that kind of a conversation? You have to let the person with the cancer uh, lead the way. Mm -hmm. If they're not willing to talk about it, they can't talk about it talk about the weather, um, just being there. You don't really have to talk about anything. Just sometimes that normal conversation is so blessed. You know, when everything in your world becomes dominated by cancer and the side effects and the treatment or the possibilities or the threats of death or the threats of all of the losses that you that may that have come and may come in the future, you just want to hear some you know juicy bit of mundane gossip. You want to talk about something other than cancer. And if you know if the person with cancer wants to talk about death and dying or our potentials, then listen, just listen, not looking for any advice. You. You don't want any, well, keep the chin ups because, you know, it gets pretty tiring of trying to keep your chin up and getting told to keep your chin up is just uh, annoying. It's irritating. Sometimes you just want to be able to break down and it be okay to cry. 
and someone not try to change that, but just be with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can really hear the wisdom in that. So you just mentioned, you know, like the losses that the person is experiencing and the ones in the future. Talk about that for a minute. Like what are, you know, the kinds of losses that the patient in particular is likely to go through? Well, with the diagnosis alone, you lose the hopes and the dreams of the future that you had uh, had planned for yourself. You lose the life that you had because it's now suddenly changed and you don't know what it's going to turn out like. You lose control of your body, your life and your future. Then from there, it just kind of you know keeps avalanching. I lost my breasts. I lost my career uh, due to the side effects of my treatment. Um, some people lose relationships. Some mm-hmm. some of these relationships that they lose are actually positive. That you know it's a good thing that they lost them. They needed to be shed, but it's still it's a it's a loss. It's a loss right. to realize that someone isn't going to be there for you when you thought. Um, it's some people don't have enough money for their treatment. So they lose, you know, they lose their financial stability. They lose jobs. They lose, um, it, it, the, the losses just keep avalanching mm-hmm. their ability to be caregivers in the, the way they lose this identities that we have tied up in what we do rather than who we are. Right. Right. So it's like suddenly you're not able to do, and then yeah. you don't have the value in the work that you thought you needed in order to be able to go forward. I'm just thinking too that from the the caregiver side or the even on the friend side, not necessarily a caregiver, that you know there's also the loss of your good friend. Yeah, you you know like the the liveliness that they had, you know how you saw them, how you experienced them. Suddenly they're dealing with things, you know, you're hearing about their sicknesses, you're hearing about their response to, you know, their treatment plan, you're hearing about, you know, even though they're not talking specifically about it, you can hear the loss in their voice. Right. And and then I think in a way, BB, it's even harder for a caregiver or a bystander or the friend uh, or the partner in relationship. because you're standing by helplessly watching someone go through something and there's not a thing you can do about it. Yeah, very true. What would you, are there any tips that you can think of that you might give the bystander who can't, who feels helpless? Like I mentioned before, Platitudes do not help. Um, just honoring what you what you're able to to do. Don't say, "Oh, if you need anything, um, call me. I'll be glad to help." For one thing, that puts the burden on the person who's feeling ill, not able to think rationally, to come up with something that you can do to help. If it would be better if you can say. I've got Thursday afternoons free. I'd be delighted to pick up your kids from school. Um, Or I'm headed to the grocery store. Is there anything I can bring you? 
uh, hey, I'm really good at laundry. I'm going to pick up your, your dirty laundry on Wednesday and have it back to you by Thursday morning. Uh, if you can come up with things, it, it or someone that's sick just cannot even think. And then if they, they're afraid that if they do have something that you can do for them, that you're going to go, oh, uh, gee, golly, yeah, let me, let me look at the time. I, I got to go do this thing, you know, because empty platitudes just um, people feel that they're supposed to offer something and then they don't. So you don't really know when someone really means it. So the, as from the caregiver point of view, just offer what you can and then just be with. You know, that's and, really great, you know, for you to bring up the thing like, you know, if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. What are some other, what you call platitudes that you would say as the bystander are not effective? Besides, hey, let me know when you could use my help. <laughs> Whenever you can well, think of that. <laughs> any advice? You know, um, a breast cancer veteran, um, well, any advice that's unsolicited can be construed as, as criticism. But the breast cancer veteran is more likely, if you've been through the process yourself, they might listen. But there's no way you can stand on the outside and tell a breast cancer veteran, like, oh, at least it's just breast cancer. That's not even like real cancer anymore. Or um, at least you got a free boob job. You know, think of that. You know, you got perkies from now on. Um, and well, you can always do these games on or do these mind games. That'll keep your, you know, that brain fog and that stuff from, you know, bothering you. No, none of that works. <laughs> It is not a free boob job. <laughs> Your hair falling out in every step you take is not, you know, an opportunity to get a great wig. It's, it's, yeah. I know that, you know, some of the things that um, you and I have talked about over the years, that things that were absolutely not helpful where um, I'm going to use one example that I remember we talked about was like, um, so what did you do to get this? <laughs> oh, know, yeah. Kind of like what well, kind of a category would you put those kinds of statements into? Unbelievably, I had more than one time I had nurses, believe it or not, walk up to me and say, you know, cancer is just anger turned inward. And you know, I, I'm not really one of these quick-witted people. I, I, uh, even coming onto this, I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to respond to these questions, you know, just <laughs> on the fly here. But, um, I, I just, you know, I, I must've stood there with my mouth hanging open, you know, that she would insinuate that I gave myself cancer. It's some kind of character flaw that I didn't, express anger or I was being too nice or was she trying to say I was being too phony I mean you know she has every right to decide in her mind what I might have might have done or not done to have gotten cancer but she had no right to force that on me 
mm-hmm. and imply that I had done something wrong or inappropriate, or I had done something in an inadequate way, or this was some kind of punishment that I brought on myself. It's kind of like, I'm putting this in the category of my mind right now, kind of like the spiritual bypass, you know, it's like, you know, somebody feels they have the spiritual explanation for what's going on. And then, you know, say, Hey, Oh yeah. Well, it's just anger turned inward. Yeah. Um, And it's like, that was very unconscious to say. It's, it's incredibly cruel. So one of the things that I'm wondering if you cover in your book, do you cover things like um, if you get to that, because you say it's from diagnosis to healing, or you don't quite say that in the title, but it's from grief to healing. But um, do you discuss things for people as a resource where you give them um, tips on what to do? Like, for example, don't go alone to the doctor once you find out that you've got it. Do you do you have like a, I'm going to call it a checklist, for lack of a better word, of like ask questions about what their medications will be like. Ask questions about what are the after effects of what um, the treatment will be. Um, you know, I know that for the several friends of mine that have been going through especially breast cancer, you know, the single largest thing is I, you know, I go in for chemo and then I feel like shit for a week. And then yeah. I'm good for two weeks, but then they give me another session. And then I feel like shit for a week, you know, kind of thing. Do you go through like a list of things for them to, as you called it, the plan of attack uh, yeah. of how they, what they need to know that would be beneficial? Do you cover things like that in your book? I do, but in a different direction. That information is actually provided in several different ways. Whenever you go for it, they give you all this information. You have nurse advocates that help you. Okay, this is how you're going to feel. This is how your your partner is going to feel when they do it. It's you're given the, the this amount of information. What you're not given is anything that tells you why you're in this emotional hell. And I did not understand that. I mean, I knew all this about breast cancer. I knew all of this about side effects and treatment modalities and staging and prognosis. Uh, but I I had no idea the, the utter hell that was churning inside of me and why I could not get in control of it until I, I just bumbled and bumbled and stumbled through my whole process. Then I was able to look back. And then I realized I needed something at the time. I needed a book that explained what my brain was going through and I couldn't find it. And that's why I decided that maybe I needed to write what I was needing at the time. But I didn't know how, because how do you write a book about breast cancer? There's many books out about all of what you're talking about, the side effects and how you're going to feel and that sort of thing and what to do and there's nothing out there that's telling you what, what your heart is going through. And nobody's really voiced the emotional, the mental and emotional aspects of the breast cancer experience. And I realized that, that since I couldn't boil it down to a, a how-to book for breast cancer, 
there's just no way. So I thought there is one common denominator among every person ever diagnosed with breast cancer, and that's loss. You're going to lose something, even if it's the the stage zero where they just remove the the little isolated cancer nodule and then you don't need chemo or anything. You still have a loss there all the way up to stage four. There's losses of all sorts. And with loss comes the grieving process. With that, I realized everything that I felt fell into place with the grieving process, that shock and denial, that momentary anger of, you know, why is this happening to me? Let me slam this phone down to the bargaining, which I totally, I totally agree with the, the state, the phases of grief. I don't like to call them stages because it sounds so linear and so uh, yeah. and fixed. I think of this as a fluid, um, fluid phases of, of what you might experience as you go through the grieving process. But I have seen people, I have watched the grieving process for years and everybody seems to go through every phase. They go through the shock and the denial. They go through the bargaining. They go through the anger, which the, the denial and the bargaining are ways to soften the blow and to mitigate the consequences. And that's when all your survival instincts are in place. Then the anger comes in as kind of like, you know, you get pissed because you haven't figured your way out of this hell. And then when you realize your anger doesn't work, you go through depression. And, you know, it doesn't, it isn't, it kind of goes in a linear pattern into a certain extent, but you can flow back and forth. But if you right. get hooked up in any phase, it seems like you get stuck there for a while. So I stayed stuck <laughs> in a lot of phases. So what I did is I broke it down into the grieving process. And I, I wrote about what is going on in your brain when you're in the shock and denial. And this is, and I'll go through why it's actually your best friend at the moment. We always look at grief as being something you got to get through. You got to get around. You got to stuff down. You got to master. You got to get over. Uh, mm -mm. It's actually a very healing process if you allow it, if you understand what's going on. So I brought broke it down each phase. I broke it down into what's happening in your brain and why it's happening. And then things that you can do to understand, like in the denial stage, you know, you're going to have trouble understanding what you hear. Take someone with you, the anxiety the and bargaining the trying to figure out the decisions do you do you want reconstruction do you want a single mastectomy a bilateral mastectomy do you want reconstruction if you so want reconstruction do you want this type or that type or the other type it, there's just all of these questions thrown at you when you're in no shape to make a rational decision your lizard brain is still front and center your rational brain is offline so there's things i do to help calm lizard brain so your rational brain can take over and make help you make the decisions. And also I give suggestions on how to just trust in yourself in your decision-making process and understand that you're doing the best you can at the time with what you've got to deal with and 
just make a pact that you're not going to beat yourself up for things that don't turn out the way you wanted them to. I imagine that that can be very difficult too. It's like, oh, gee, I should have made a better decision. Oh, yeah. <laughs> After going through all of my treatments and things, um, I was on, I finally got on Facebook. And I got with the Times and um, things started coming across my feed about how if you took these these pills or did this course or all these people that got these miraculous healings. And then I started feeling like a failure all over again. I went through this chemical hell. Yes, it felt like I that was the path I was supposed to take at the time. But then there was all of these people that didn't have to do that. They didn't have to lose their breasts. They didn't have to lose their hair. They didn't have to this. And what made them so special and not me? And, mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I don't mean that arrogantly. I just like, what did I do so wrong that I couldn't get an outcome like that? And that, that big why, you know, was the, the why did this happen to me? almost get the feeling you're not supposed to ask why it's an unanswerable question and that was one of the very first things I asked my oncologist and he, and my oncologist love him dearly was so kind he's the kindest most compassionate healer that I've ever met but he was really quick to say oh don't don't ask why there is no answer to that question you know don't focus on that and um, bless his heart he was doing his best but it made me feel that I wasn't supposed to ask. I was just supposed to take my fate like I was an ant on the sidewalk that got stepped on. Mm. And I break down is it's okay to ask why. Because when we ask why something happens to us, we're not just arrogantly thinking it, that we should have been so special that it shouldn't happen to us. We're mm -hmm. actually looking for something that we might have done wrong that we can, if we knew what it was, let's just not do that again. So this won't come back. And that's a perfectly logical, rational thing to do. If I drank from too many bottles, you know, plastic bottles, you know, well, well, I just will stop that. <laughs> <laughs> And Part of it, I guess, is like hoping that you can find a simple explanation of things right. that you could do to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. But I also was afraid. And I my mind kept asking why, because I was afraid that the reason was as I didn't deserve to live. Yeah. So my not feeling free to ask why caused me to just believe that I that I didn't deserve to live and I didn't deserve to ask why I didn't deserve to live. Mm. That sounds pretty deep. So how did you end up dealing with that? Going through it just every way possibly wrong. <laughs> Fighting and kicking and scratching, doing it all wrong, which turns out to be the best way, because how could I have ever made it an experience that would probably be universalized for, for others had I not done, done it all wrong? So in parts of my book, I write, okay, don't do it the way I did it. Do it any other way. It's got to be an improvement, just not the way I did it. 
Um, but in the process, I was able to look back and understand what I was going through. So I was able to write and that writing that really helped me to, to bring the good out of the hell. Hmm. It's kind of like having that understanding and wisdom. Is that what you're saying that you've gained from yeah. the experience that you're able yeah. to share? Was, was that be how you characterize it? And, and that's what my hopes for the book is. I actually, I have two hopes for this book is to help every anyone and their, the people that love them and the people that are the healthcare providers that are providing for anyone experiencing breast cancer, that they can understand that emotional aspect, the emotional hell they're going through and um, give themselves a little grace, uh, a little peace, a few little answers, a few little ways to, to deal with um, some of the things they're going through. Um, just to understand that they're not alone. And it's okay to have all those crazy making brain stuff going on. Yeah, one of the questions that I had for you is like, just as you were answering your hope for the book, do you feel that your hope for the book in terms of information is different for the patient the caregiver and the medical team, are there different outcomes or are they all the same outcome? Well, what, yes, it's the same for every everyone. I explain the information, the logical side, the, the medical information side of what's going on. And then I give a glimpse of what, through my eyes as I lived it, like, mm -hmm. The bargaining, I would talk about, okay, this is what your, what your brain is going to do to try to make things better or to soften the blow of what's coming. And then I would give a little clip. Um, I call them blurbs of, of me doing, you know, going through that experience. And a lot of my stuff, um, I have an odd sense of humor. And yes, you do. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things I, I totally appreciate about you. <laughs> yeah. Breast cancer is a heavy topic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody dances around it or tiptoes around it with such, you know, tenderness and, and fear. And I blundered through it and just made a vulnerable moment for people to laugh. Mm -hmm. I had one lady who, who read, um, did a advanced, um, reader's review. And uh, she said that she laughed, she cried, and she was going for her mammogram in the morning. <laughs> so uh, I, I just want to bring, uh, you know, a moment of humor, uh, people that can relate, they can relate mm -hmm. to my, um, and also I'm hoping that if they can see me as, you know, this nurse practitioner extraordinaire, totally fall apart that they, they can understand it's okay for them to fall apart too mm. yes my second dream for the book is i want the the medical profession the medical um, community to to become more aware that every person diagnosed with breast cancer needs deserves just front and center 
as much attention and respect to their, their mental and emotional health as well as their physical bodies. Just It should be um, addressed immediately. Now, it's a little hard at first because what is the first stage? Denial. I don't need any help. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to do it this way. I this. You know, the denial of what might be become. But if it's if, if it's presented and shown in care every step of the way for every visit or uh, every opportunity that they know that they can have some support or support um, services, uh, I think patient health outcomes would be better, which is a fancy way of saying. I think people who are going through health, who have support, seem to get well faster and better. And... Um, I think it would it be beneficial to everyone. No, no one have to fall apart to actually get the help they need, and that's the trouble with our our medical system today. You have to have the ability to get off work to go to a counseling session or a support group. You have to have the money to pay your copays for a counselor. Uh, there's so many barriers. To getting the mental and social and mental and emotional support that you need, right? Um, I hear that, and thank you for voicing that. <clears throat> I know that um, a couple of my friends who are going through the process right now, that's been a, a huge thing for them. Is to they will say, you know, I get the emotional support that I need, you know, or that there's space for me to be emotional when I go talk to the oncologist or the nurse practitioner or the whomever. Um, so thank you for bringing that forward. But one of the things that, you know, you said like you didn't take Terry to the first appointment because, you know, kind of part of it is I heard is like, how do you ask for the help and support that you need when you don't even know what you need? Right. Yeah. What can you say about how you've learned to ask for the support that you need? Well, I wish I could answer that easily. It just takes a lot of realization. You have to go through it. Um, I still struggle to not be um, the 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 doer, the the one that is the strong one for everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's just an ongoing life process. Yeah. <laughs> So when the book, the idea of writing the book first came to you, where did the seed get planted? You know, what was it that you said, well, man, this isn't available. I wish I had a book or a resource. Was that the seed or was there something else that, you know, you just felt like it was a call? It happened when I was first diagnosis, diagnosed. I I recognize now I was going through the bargaining phase of what do I do? Do I, I have a foot in two worlds. I have a long, a wealthy history of Western medicine uh, as a nurse practitioner. I also have this other side. I've been trained in traditional Chinese um, herbal medicine. I have a uh, great uh, belief in, in, like I said, I was a health food snob. Uh, 
And I was getting a lot of, I mean, a lot of people were telling me what to do. Some said, oh, you've got to do everything the doctor says to, to do. Others were saying, you're barbaric to think about having chemo or cutting your breasts off. And, and all of that was just so not helpful. And that was in the advice that you had mentioned before. But I was going through a stage of, of what do I do? I mean, I was praying, God, please, would you put up this big flashing neon billboard saying, Gayla, do this. And I never got it. And I was asking everybody their opinion. What did it? This is all so normal. We got, well, what do you think I should do? Yeah, I was telling everybody my problems and, and people didn't know what to say. And I was out of control. And I was thinking I needed something would just explain to me how, how I'm, why am I going crazy? <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't out there. And, and I kept thinking somebody should write a book. Somebody should have something out there that would help me during this time. And then I would get this little, I got this little tingle of a thought of maybe I should be the one to do it. And all it did at the time was made me start paying attention, made me start remembering all of the little instances, all the little um, things that were said or done or to me or the things that helped me, uh, the things that didn't help. I, I started keeping track of that. Mm -hmm. And then it all, it didn't come like, oh, okay, you're going to write a book, Kayla Baker. Uh, it came as a nebulous little thought and it just kept like a cloud storm, you know, trying to form. It just kept swirling around, but never anything I could grab a hold of until it was time. And I realized what I had to go through took time. I couldn't, I didn't have what I, the wisdom that I have now, I didn't have it then. Mm-hmm. I couldn't write it then, but it, it just started as I just needed to pay attention and wait until it unfolded. And not so that then, I really had patience. <laughs> so, so how did you know that this was the time to start formulating it, to let all of the clouds that have been forming to start putting it on paper? Well, as, as it got closer, things would come together, opportunities opened up. Um, I had been pushing and trying and trying to make it work and yeah. it just never would work. And so I always took that as failure that um, I wasn't supposed to write this book. Uh, maybe I just needed a real hefty journal or something, but uh, then all of a sudden an opportunity to work with a publishing company, someone who helped me with, with writing, developing the story. And then uh, lo and behold, I had the financial ability to sign with it and the time to be able to do it. And the brain fog was gone enough that I could get both of my brain cells to talk to each other. <laughs> it just seemed, seems, seemed to fall into place when I wasn't kicking and scratching trying to do it. So that's that's what I'm going for. And it's what I'm still striving for. The book isn't out yet. The right. edited 
haven't been completed. The cover and design's not finished. And, and I'm wanting to get in there and, and scrap and say, okay, you know what, what is it? What's, what's, what's all up? What's called up here? I got things to do. I've got people out there this, that I want to, you know, to put this book in their hands I, to help. And I'm still going that, okay. So part of it, do, do you feel that you've learned through your experience to kind of surrender to the what is process a little better? Well, it, it would be nice. I do surrender. <laughs> I like that. That's a good answer. <laughs> It'd be nice if I could surrender to the process. Yes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. can claim that one for myself. <laughs> having, you know, all these years of, um, of believing uh, that I had, I had to do it myself. Yeah. Um, not trusting that the universe is going to unfold for me. Mm. I've never really had that trust. So earning that, you know, trying to, to develop that trust that, that this unfolding isn't a sign of my failure or my lack of getting it done correctly, but as it's supposed to be on a different timeline than mine, like divine timing, not my timing. Yeah. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Hear that deep sigh. <laughs> the deep sigh. So, yeah. you know, Kayla, from your experience and in putting this book together and everything, how do you feel that if people were to read your book, for example, how it might change the world? You know, if, if the best outcome could ever happen, how might it change the world? Well, if it helps one person understand what's going on in, in their heart and their emotions and their mind at the time, that's to me wonderful. And I think that would start a triple effect, trickle effect, excuse me. But the, the thing is, is that when you receive a diagnosis of breast cancer, it's, it's a traumatic event in itself. And when you consider that, and due to the recent stats, over 4 million people are experiencing breast cancer right now. And there's like 250,000 a year in the United States alone that's going to be diagnosed uh, in, the, in 2023, it's predicted. That's a lot of traumatized people. Yeah. So if you do anything to help even a few of those reduce that trauma. You got a, you got some traumatized people walking around with some effective tools, hopefully effective tools, to reducing their trauma, to live in happier lives. Happier lives are make for a happier society. And I think it just grows from there. Thank you. So people, I know that one of the things that you'd like to be able to do you know, as a result of the book in particular, to be able to start going out and speaking and, you know, um, making presentations and other kinds of things. What do you hope to be able to do beyond that? You mean with that or beyond that? Um, okay, either one with it. I was thinking like besides speaking, is there something else that you would hope to be able to to do as a result of having published a book or? Um, yeah, 
I, you know, I have hopes that the book will help, you know, just in itself. Um, yeah. My oncologist said that he wants to put one in the hands of every um, patient that he has. And he says, it's not just relatable to breast cancer, but any cancer. And I thought that was high praise coming from him. Um, I would like to have the speaking engagements to help with people to understand what's going on, but also medical conventions. You know, if I can get up there and I can talk to, to what people can do better to help their patients, you know, what the, the medical community can do to help people get through this a little easier, um, where they're lacking uh, in, you know, patient care. Um, and uh, I don't have a lot past that because I'm at a stage in my life that I enjoy being at home with my, my two, my two puppies. <laughs> you two big puppies. <laughs> yeah. Two big puppies, Barney and, and Bailey, because I run the Baker Circus. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was good. <laughs> so if people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, I am. Um, well, I'm, my website is is right under development, but um, uh, bcveteran.com. And um, my uh, email would be um, info at bcveteran.com. And um I hope to hear someone. It's it's all in development right now. I have mm -hmm. to get things finished before I can get it all put together. But um, that's how they can get a hold of me. Cool. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I I I feel like I've learned, you know, from our experience here today. And, you know, hopefully that's something that other people can take away too. So thank you so much for your time. And um Best wishes for, you know, your book being a bestseller and you being on the road speaking. Thank you. All right.